Good morning once again, brothers and sisters. If you will, take out your Bibles with me. And let's go to 1 Corinthians, the New Testament book of 1 Corinthians. If you're not familiar with the way a Bible is laid out, the latter third, the, the last third, so to speak, of your Bible is the New Testament. And the New Testament starts with the book of Matthew, and it goes on Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, then Acts, then Romans, then 1 Corinthians. <clears throat> so we'll be in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting in verse 10 here in just a moment. Uh, as we do typically, I would encourage you to bring your own Bible to church uh, and read through the Bible as we read through the text and follow along with us and look back at the text as we look back at it. And I think it's a, a great habit to be in to bring our Bibles to church. <clears throat> Excuse me. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting in verse 10 here in just a moment. Now, throughout church history, there has been a, a tension, a tension between two things that we're going to talk about today. A tension between, on the one hand, unity, unity among Christians, and on the other hand, taking a strong stand for the truth of God's Word. And throughout church history, we've seen a lot of tension on those two things. They, they pull on different sides. Now, the Bible calls for both. The Bible calls us to have both of those things, to, to have unity amongst ourselves as Christians and to stand strong on God's truth. And they should not have to be in tension, yet many times they are. Some people believe you can either have one or the other, but you can't have both. If you want unity, then, then you just don't need to teach doctrine in any deep way. Right? You can't stand too hard on God's truth because if you want unity, that, that won't give it to you. Or on the other hand, if you want to teach doctrine, if you want to teach the truth in any kind of strong, deep way, then you've just got to sacrifice unity because it's just going to divide. Some people think you can have one or the other, but you can't have both. But is it possible? Is it possible to have both? The founders of the Restoration Movement thought so. In America, in the late 1700s and the early 1800s, Americans were getting fed up with churches. They're getting fed up with churches in America because it seemed like the churches couldn't even agree on the basic doctrines of the faith. New denominations and new church splits were springing up all the time because of how often Christians were dividing from one another. Church names, the names of churches, began to be so long because these churches felt like they had to describe themselves to the world to let everyone know what they were for and what they were against. What they were for and what they were against. What they were for and what they were against. Church names were getting so long you couldn't even put them on a church sign. And people were getting fed up with it. And so in an effort to unite Christians around the Bible, men like Barton Stone and Alexander Campbell, remember this is the late 1700s and early 1800s, men like that began to preach unity and a return to the New Testament as the only authority for our churches. And this movement caught on quickly because of how people were fed up with all the division, and it became known as the Restoration Movement, a movement to restore the church to the way it was in the New Testament. And this is a movement from which our church and the Christian churches in America trace their heritage, their lineage. We can trace our lineage in the Christian church back to that Restoration Movement that started at the beginning of the 1800s. And in those early years, the leaders of the Restoration Movement stressed both 
unity among believers and a commitment to biblical authority. And they rightly saw that those two principles are not exclusive from one another in the Bible. They do not contradict one another. You can have both. It's hard, but you can. Let's look at our text today. I want to show you how that applies to what we're talking about straight from God's Word today. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting in verse 10. I'm going to read down to verse 17. I'm reading out of the English Standard Version this morning. Verse 10, Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized into the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the house of, household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. A few things I want us to look at from our text today. The first is this. What was the problem then and Concordantly, what is the problem today? What's the problem today that is like the problem that they had then? So what was the problem then? The problem then and the problem now. The problem then is in verse 12. Look at verse 12. What were the Corinthians doing? Well, they were dividing from one another by saying, well, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, which was another Bible teacher in Corinth back in the day. I follow Cephas, which is just another name for Peter, the Apostle Peter, and some were like, I follow Christ. And they were dividing on who they followed. They were finding a sense of worth in themselves, a sense of self-worth in following a certain leader, and they were using that to feel superior to others. You're not in my group, and so because you're not in this group, the one that I'm in, the one that's right, I feel superior to you because you're not in this group. So that was the problem then. But here's the question. Is this a temptation today? Is this a temptation today? You better believe it is. We tend to coalesce. We tend to gather around a popular figure in public and say, oh no, we, we like that person. We're kind of a disciple of that person. Maybe it's an author or a popular speaker. Or maybe... It's an outspoken TV personality or the host of a radio show or a podcast, especially these days in politics. And perhaps the biggest one, a president. But it's not just organizing around a person. Yes, we, we do a lot of that. And yes, we do find a lot of superiority in who we follow. But it's not the only way that you can do this, that you can have this problem. You can organize around other things and find superiority in other group identities, so to speak. For instance, there's the pro-mask people and the anti-mask people right now, right? And they are strong in their opinions on both sides. 
pro-mask and anti-mask. And I'm here to tell you, both sides can be sinful and divisive in their pride. Satan is perfectly happy for you to be on either side of that debate as long as you're sinfully divisive and prideful about how the other side is wrong. This is a problem today just like it was back then. Think about the contemporary worship music versus traditional worship music divide. We have strong opinions about these things and sometimes we fall to the temptation of feeling superior because of the group that we are in. The whole attitude is summed up like this. Our group is better because we are right and they are wrong. And brothers and sisters, I'm here to tell you that we are all susceptible to this temptation today. All of us. All of us can fall to this. Beware. Beware the temptation to be like the Pharisee who stood before God and said, God, I thank you that I am not like other men. Beware the temptation to to hear this and to think, man, I, I know a lot of people like that without ever applying it to your own heart. Beware of the 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 oh-so-common temptation that we fall to in seeing the speck in someone else's eye and completely missing the plank in our own. So what do we do? What's the answer to that? Well, the, the key is verse 13 here. I think verse 13 is kind of the key verse in this whole passage. Look at what Paul says there. In verse 13 he says, Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized into the name of Paul? Now, what's Paul saying there? Here's what I think he's saying. I think he's saying the only human leader that we unite ourselves around as Christians is Jesus. As Christians, the only human leader that we all unite around is Jesus. Or perhaps you could say it this way, the only human leader we are willing to divide over is Jesus. If if you're a Christian today... The only human leader you should be willing to divide over, the only one, is Jesus Christ. He has our ultimate allegiance. The only group identity that should be this important to who we are is Christian. I'm a Christian before I'm anything else, right? We are Christians before we are anything else. Nothing is more fundamental to our identity, to who we are, than the fact that we are Christians, children of God. You might be tempted to find too much of your identity in something other than just being a Christian. Think about that. How many of us find so much of our identity in our work, in our jobs, in our role in the family? Even before we are a child of God, we we think of ourselves as that. Or perhaps today in Columbia, Kentucky, and places like this, you might be tempted to find too much of your identity in being a Republican or being a a conservative politically. If I were to go off of the Facebook accounts of some people that I know that, that say they are Christians, but just go off of what I see on Facebook, I would venture to say that they are much more passionate and much more committed to conservative politics than they are to Christ. Are you tempted to find too much of your identity in being an American? in being an American, in patriotism. Some people are tempted, it's a temptation, it is, to to lift their patriotism up to the level of their allegiance to Christ. 
to consider themselves an American before they consider, or even as high as they consider their, themselves a, a citizen in God's kingdom. And I've seen this too, and this is a tough one, but some people find it very hard not to lift up being a veteran up to the level of allegiance to Christ. That, that is their identity even before they are a Christian. And now, none of these things are wrong. None of these things are wrong in and of themselves, but just like good things can be lifted so high that they become idols, we can begin to find our identity in something other than Jesus Christ. And so it's, it's okay to have your favorite preacher. It is. It's okay to have your favorite news anchor. It's okay to have strong opinions on issues. It's okay to feel a sense of pride to be in a certain group. Not sinful pride, but to be proud that I'm a part of a group, right? There's a way to, to be proud and not be sinful about it in that way. That's okay. But for those of us who are children of God, may we never allow these things to rise to the level of our allegiance to Jesus Christ. Jesus has our ultimate allegiance. And in that way, in that way, I can have true fellowship with any one of you even if you disagree with me on all of those other things. We can have true fellowship and true unity even if we disagree on all those other things. Why? Because our ultimate allegiance is Jesus. The common bond that unites us is our allegiance to Jesus above anything else and we find our identity first and foremost there in the fact that we are a Christian. Now, I believe also our text leads us to an important question. At least it led me to an important question, and I'd like to ask it to you as well and ask you to think about this. Because of what Paul says, with all the division in Corinth, and I follow Christ, and I follow Apollos, and I follow Peter, does this mean that denominations are unbiblical? When I say denominations, I mean different kinds of churches, right? We've got Christian churches, Baptist churches, Methodist churches, Presbyterian churches, Pentecostal churches, Catholic churches, on and on and on. Does that mean all of those differentiations of churches are unbiblical? Look at what Paul says in verse 17. In verse 17, Paul says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Now, I've heard people go to verse 17 and say, See, stop stressing baptism so much. Get off baptism. Forget about teaching about baptism. Let's just teach about the gospel. Does this mean that denominations and church divisions are unbiblical? Now, I want to give you a nuanced answer to this. In one sense, yes, absolutely, denominations are unbiblical. Denominations are man-made divisions. If we all understood Scripture rightly, and if we all had the heart of Jesus, there would be no Christian churches and Baptist churches and Presbyterian churches and Methodist churches. There'd just be churches, and they'd all be the same in the same fellowship if we all understood Scripture rightly and if we all had the heart of Jesus. That's a big if. They're man-made divisions, so in that way, yes, of course, they are unbiblical. But I'm here to tell you that we, as the Christian church and Christian churches in general, we are part of this. We are part of this dividing, these divisions, whether we want to admit it or not. Christian churches have contributed to these divisions. That was not the original intent of the Restoration Movement. Nonetheless, it has turned into that. We are yet another division among a sea of divisions 
in the Christian church. We call ourselves a non-denominational church. Have you ever heard that? A non-denominational church? Other churches refer to themselves like this. We're, we're non-denominational, right? And what's the difference between non-denominational and a denomination? Well, part of it is we don't have any kind of governing body, right? In the Christian churches in America, we don't have any kind of governing body that we have to, to listen to the rules that they hand down, right? We're all autonomous. We're all free to make our own decisions with our own elders and our own church leadership. I understand that. But there are many people in our fellowship, in Christian churches, that act like divisions come from all the other churches, but not us. But listen, we divide. We divide on things and insist on things just like everyone else does. Think about it. We, here at Columbia Christian Church, we have commitments, theological commitments in what we believe about baptism, about the Lord's Supper, about spiritual gifts, and we're not willing to compromise on those things. And we, we shouldn't be willing to compromise on those things. We are teaching and believing what we be believe to be in the Bible. We look at the Bible and we interpret it to say certain things about you know, baptism or communion or what have you. And we're not willing to compromise on those things. But that means we're, we're part of the division just like other churches are. I'm here to tell you, from the outside looking in, Christian churches and the churches of Christ are viewed this way by other Christians in America. Other Christians look into the Christian churches and the churches of Christ and us calling us our, ourselves non-denominational and they think, oh, that's the church where they think, well, if everybody just believed like us, there'd be no divisions. Right? That's the way people see us sometimes. If everybody just believed like us, there'd be no divisions. Right? We've, we've got to have the humility to understand we are a part of this denominational culture, whether we call ourselves a denomination or not. We are part of the, the divisions of churches, and we have contributed to it. Now, having said all of that, even though denominations shouldn't exist, I will argue this morning that they're probably unavoidable until Christ returns. The fact that we have different kinds of churches, Baptist churches, Presbyterian churches, Christian churches, Churches of Christ, these divisions are probably unavoidable until Christ returns. We said earlier, if everyone understood Scripture rightly, and if everyone had the heart of Jesus, there would be no church divisions. But those things are not true. We don't all understand Scripture rightly. We don't all have the heart of Jesus. Who has the right or the perspective to claim that their interpretation of the Bible is 100% correct? No one. And so what's the answer to all of this then? How do we have unity amidst a culture where it seems like division is impossible to get away from? Now, one answer that has been given, one thing that has been tried, is to just quit teaching doctrine. Refuse to take a stand on any issue. Develop a kind of lowest common denominator theology so we can all unite. When Paul said, in verse 17... Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Some will look at verses like that and say, see, we, we don't need to be talking about all this stuff that could divide us. We don't need to go into all those doctrinal details or theology. Let's just focus on the gospel and what we can unite around. This has been one strategy that people have tried to make unity in this culture where it seems like division is all we have. 
But I'm here to tell you that's not what Paul meant in verse 17. When Paul said, Christ did not send me to baptize but to preach the gospel, he did not mean baptism was unimportant. Look at verse 13 with me. 13. He says, were you baptized into the name of Paul? You know why he says that? Because baptism was a big deal. Baptism is a big deal. You cannot read through the New Testament without concluding baptism is a big deal. Even those of us who disagree on the mode of baptism or the meaning of baptism, almost all Protestant churches these days agree baptism is a big deal in the New Testament, among other doctrinal beliefs. In verses 14 and 15, do you see how Paul's saying, I'm thanking God that I didn't baptize more of you? Why was Paul thanking God that he didn't baptize more people? Well, it's because they were bragging about who baptized them. They thought it was a big deal. Oh, Paul baptized me, so I'm, I'm more Christian than you are because he baptized me, right? It doesn't matter who dunks you under the water. Did you know that? When you get baptized, it does not matter who dunks you under the water because they're not doing something to you. God is doing something to you. One of the, the most beautiful pictures, I think, of the gospel is when a young person in a church comes to faith and their dad baptizes them, even though their dad doesn't work at the church and isn't a minister, not an elder or anything like that, but he, the, the dad baptizes the son or daughter, that's a beautiful thing. There's nothing in the Bible that says a church leader has to baptize people. In fact, I would argue that any baptized believer can baptize another person coming to Christ, even a woman. There's, there's nothing in the Bible that says a man has to be doing the baptizing. It doesn't say anything in the Bible about who can or cannot baptize, because that's not what's important. And that's why Paul says, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. That's why he says that. Context shows it. But this strategy for unity that some have tried, that some churches have tried, to quit teaching doctrine, to refuse to take a stand on anything that may divide, that strategy doesn't help anyone. In fact, it actively hurts people. It actively hurts people. I've seen it time and time again. In an effort to reach people, a church waters down its teaching and says, we're not going to address anything that could divide us. We'll just focus on what we can all unite around. We're not going to address anything that could divide us. They water down their teaching. Pretty soon what happens, what happens in a church like that is the biblical dividing line of who is and is not a Christian disappears. There's a biblical dividing line all over the New Testament. Who is a Christian and who is not a Christian. Sheep and goats, wheat and tares, in Christ, not in Christ, believer, unbeliever. It's a biblical dividing line all over Scripture. But when you water down your teaching for the sake of unity in a church, that biblical dividing line disappears and causes all kinds of problems. The genuine Christians don't grow. Those who are not saved start to have a false sense of security that they are, which is eternally dangerous. People who are not saved start to believe that they are. The church loses its ability to evangelize because they can't agree on who is or is not a Christian or how to become one. And then the church loses its identity and its purity because there's no way to define who is a member and who is not. And ultimately... When a church, for the sake of unity, waters down its teaching, ultimately the church loses its ability to worship because they cannot agree on who God is. 
or what is or is not a proper way to worship him. This strategy for unity does not work. In fact, it actively hurts people. We must seek unity, but we must seek a unity based on truth. We've got to seek unity based on truth. Unity does not come from ignoring anything that could divide us. True unity must be based on truth. A unity based on the lack of truth is no unity at all. The world tried this out for a while, and it didn't stick. Did you notice? Have you noticed? The world tried this out. Our secular world, they tried this out, this unity based on nothing, and it just didn't stick. For a while there, the culture was saying, everyone just believe whatever you want, and as long as you keep it to yourself, it's fine. Believe whatever you want, but just don't push your beliefs on me. Don't make your beliefs you know, present in any kind of public way. Just keep your beliefs to yourself, and it doesn't matter what you believe. Everybody believe what you want, follow your own heart, and it'll be fine. How long did that last? Not very long at all. The world figured out pretty quick that that wasn't going to work. Pretty soon, if you have any real beliefs or convictions, they will start to come out and affect those around you. It's just what happens. That's just life. It's the way we are as human beings. And unity based on a lack of truth doesn't work. And so what happened was the tolerance movement transformed and changed pretty quickly into the no tolerance movement. For the longest time it was the tolerance movement. Tolerance, tolerance, tolerance. And it changed really quick when the world figured out that wasn't going to work to the no tolerance movement, which is where we're at now. And now in our secular culture, if you are not on board with the latest definition of social awareness or racism or justice, you're going to get called out. You're going to get publicly shamed. The, the quote-unquote mob will dogpile on you, and pretty soon you're going to get canceled. This is the no-tolerance movement. But you see what happened. What happened was, even our secular society figured out that a unity based on a lack of truth is no unity at all. Even they figured that out. It it doesn't work. To have any kind of real unity, it must be a unity based on convictions. To have any kind of real unity amongst a group of human beings, it's got to be a unity based on convictions. Now, the world right now is trying desperately to have that. They want it so bad. And in and of of itself, that's probably a good desire. Here's the problem. The, The truth in the world is always shifting. Always shifting. You don't know what's going to be true five years from now, according to the world. What's true today was, was, is the exact opposite in many ways of what was true 30 years ago, according to the world. Right? It's, it's always changing. It's always shifting. It's shifting sand. It's always moving. You can't have any kind of real unity based on convictions if, if no one can agree on what those convictions should be. Who gets to decide what is right and what is wrong? Who gets to decide... What is something you should be ashamed of and what is something you should be proud of? Who gets to decide that stuff? No one knows. They can't figure it out. It's chaos, right? They desperately want a unity based on convictions, which is good, but you can't have it if the truth is always shifting. What do you need? You need truth that never moves. You need truth that doesn't change. You need there to be absolutes, absolute truth, for everyone for all time. And who's the only one who can hand down an absolute truth? God. God is the only one 
who has the perspective to say, this is right and this is wrong for all people for all time. God's the only one who can do that. No one else has the perspective to do that. No one else can see what he sees. No one else can be objective and take a step back from creation. God's different than creation. He's the creator. We are the created creatures, right? God's the only one who can say, this is right, this is wrong for all people for all time. God's the only one who can see all time. God's the only one who has the perspective. Without God, you can't have true unity because you can't have truth that never moves. But with God, with God who has graciously revealed to us Himself and the truth in a book that we can read, a book that is outside of ourselves. Martin Luther used to call it the external word. I love that phrase. The external word, it's not inside of me, it's out here. So we can all look at it objectively and and talk about what's here. God gave us the truth in His Word. And so real unity is possible. But the only way you can have it is is if you unite around this. And so because of that, we're going to teach this. We're going to talk about this. We're going to dig into this. We're going to seek the Lord and seek the truth out through this. And we're going to let God tell us what is right and wrong. We're going to let God define who He is and who we are and what the world is and what love is and what love is not. We're going to let God define those things. And that is how we will find unity. The only way you get true unity is if you insist on God's truth. And so we seek unity based on the truth of God's Word. The problem in Corinth was not that people were standing up for God's truth. It's that they were pridefully standing up for themselves. They're trying to find superiority in their group. May we never, as Christians, feel superior to other people for any reason even people who have not yet found Jesus, may we never feel superior. May we always relate to others with compassion and with a longing to see them find the joy and salvation that some of us have already found. The goal of the Corinthians there was to feel superior to others. Our goal is love. Love. With all of the things that could divide us right now, let's find common ground in standing for God's truth. Let's find common ground and unity in Christ. Who was crucified for you? Jesus. Into whose name were you baptized? The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Did the person who baptized you say that when you got baptized? I'm not saying they have to. If they, if they didn't say that, it's not like your baptism doesn't count. But Sometimes we say that. We baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Why do we do that? Well, because Jesus told us to do that in the Great Commission. You go baptize them as you make disciples, and you baptize them in the name of the Trinity, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is how we have unity. Our unity is in Christ. We can have true fellowship with one another, even if we disagree on all kinds of things. Because our ultimate allegiance is Christ. What a wonderful witness it is to the world when unbelievers walk into a church and they see people 
who, according to the world's standards, should hate each other. And they don't. They love one another, even amidst their strong disagreements. Why? Because their ultimate allegiance is to Jesus. So can you have unity and a commitment to God's truth? Yeah, you can. In fact, it's the only way that you can have true unity. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for your truth this morning. We thank you for your word that you have given us. Thank you for loving us and caring about us enough to give us your word, to reveal yourself to us, and to reveal the gospel to us, the only way we can be reconciled to you and reconciled to each other. God, we thank you for that. God, we give you our hearts, we give you our lives and our minds and our actions. God, you are our Lord, you are our Master. And we pledge allegiance to your Son, Jesus. And God, we we plead with you, help us to bring others into this fold, into this group, so that they could experience this joy and this hope and this satisfaction in their hearts that we cannot find anywhere else. Burden our hearts with this. Unite us as a church. Protect us from all the ways that Satan wants to divide us. You have been protecting us. Continue to protect us. It's in Jesus' name that we ask these things. Jesus, our our ultimate protector and uniter. Amen.